Hey, my name is Lucas, and I want to welcome you to the official podcast of Coastline Young Adults from Coastline Church in Victoria. This podcast is dedicated to encouraging you in your faith and helping you apply it to real life in real time. Here you'll find messages from our weekly service at Coastline Nights and other conversations where we talk and tackle what it means to be a follower of Jesus in today's culture. Everything you find here will point you to the truth and hope of Jesus. So grab a beverage, enjoy the message, and lean into how God wants to speak to you today. Hey, good evening, everyone. You doing good? So in my notes, I have, don't make fun of them when they don't answer your question if they're doing good. So I'm not going to do that anymore because the Lord told me to stop making you feel bad for your lack of participation in church. So how about I don't say that and then you just promise me you'll participate from this sermon on. Deal? It's pitiful. Um, no, nah, just teasing you. I love how last week Delmar called me the big guy and then this week Brent, I'm the butt of I'm the eye color of the, I'm just the butt of the jokes, hey? That's how we do the hosting now? Good to know, guys. Um, hey, welcome to church. Uh, if, you're, if it is your first time or your first time back in a little while, whatever that is, um, I want you to know you're, you're welcome here. We're, we're just re- really grateful that you've come tonight. I hope you feel that authenticity from us and the team. I was talking to someone before who's like, I've been around, but I haven't been around in a while, and I just want to promise you, I'm not keeping attendance. It's all good. Please join us tonight. This is great. I'm, I'm really grateful, thankful that I got to meet that person and, and meet many of you. And so thanks for being here tonight. We hope it blesses you and encourages you in the summer. We are in a series called Acts. We're rolling through, chugging through the book of Acts. We've been kind of learning lots about the early church, the Holy Spirit. We've been talking a lot about kind of just the, the different places specifically that Paul has been in the last little while. The Apostle Paul, you've probably heard of him. He wrote much of the New Testament, his journey. Much of the, the book of Acts kind of follows him and where he's been in the different churches he planted or was a starting to plant. And, and so tonight, we kind of jumped ahead last week because I, I really felt like excited about certain pieces in Acts 18. Tonight, I want to go back to Acts 17. Uh, we haven't covered every single area that Paul has gone to. If you kind of go back into our sermons on coastline, like coastlinechurch.ca or we are coastline, I, I always mess up our website. I don't know what it is. It's around there. You can find us. Um, Andy has preached a lot of great sermons in the morning. He actually was just in many of these places. He just did kind of a really cool uh, tour through this area. And so if you want more history on Berea or Thessalonica or different places, you can go to our morning sermons and find that. Um, but there is something unique, I think, about... Paul's time in Athens. And so that's where we're going to be in Acts 17. There's a Bible in front of you. You can grab it. It's going to be on the screens. Paul's time in Athens is unique. I think it's unique. I think it speaks kind of to our culture, our cultural moment, if you will. I think there's some pieces about Athens that we can relate to and understand. Athens was this kind of obviously very well cultured place, educated city. It was proud of its heritage, proud of its history. It's kind of like... um, I, it would be like going to Oxford in London. It was very educated and intellectual. Like it had, I was going to do a British accent, but I'm not going to anymore because everyone makes everything I do. I, I love the South African accent. It's the best. And everyone I think I do just sounds Kiwi. Anyways, um, but Corinth had like, Corinth had actually become the military and kind of political centerpiece, epicenter. While, while Athens used to have that, now it was really just this place of culture, of conversation, of art of kind of liberty really it was this place where people came to just talk and be 
and philosophize and have this moment, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it became kind of redundant in its nature. And so Athens, again, educated, cultured, intellectual city. And Paul has been busy. He's been going from place to place. You guys know this. He's kind of been, he'll be starting one place. He'll get kind of in trouble in the synagogue. So he'll go to the marketplace. He'll get in trouble and a riot will happen. And so he gets kicked out or he has to run for his life. And so it's been a journey for Paul. We talked last week how we got to Corinth and he finally had some rest, but this moment happens right before that. And I want you to know it happens right before that. He's been traveling, he's busy, he arrives, and in the first verse we're gonna read tonight, he is instantly kind of just hit, okay? His spirit is just kind of like moved. The Bible says that he was kind of like greatly distressed. And I just, I wanna just pinpoint that for a moment. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you have been doing something or you're around a certain group of people or you're at a certain place and your spirit is just like, whoa, something just happened. Um, I, I was trying to remember even a moment for that, that for me, and this is gonna sound silly, but I'll never forget the first time I went to the movie theater and I saw The Hunger Games. You guys remember when that came out? 2012, right? Nothing wrong with Hunger Games. Don't worry if you watched Hunger recently. I'm not gonna call you like a sitter in church. Relax, okay? Um, but I'll never forget, I went and went with friends, and I don't know about you, but when I go to the movies, I wanna go to the movies, you know? Like, I'm gonna spend the $97 it takes to go to the movies nowadays. I'm gonna buy a popcorn, right? But I'm gonna sneak in a pop because you can't buy all of everything. Can't do it, right? But I'm gonna sneak in my own drinks, right? Anyone else? Just the pastor stealing. Thank you, thank you. That was an opportunity for participation and 13% got 50% on that mark. Um, and so I, I remember bringing in like my whatever, my Coke, whatever I had, A&W root beer, something good. And I bought the largest popcorn just for me. Like, did you know, I might've shared it with Trina. I don't remember. We were married at this point, right? And so I remember going in and you don't get butter on the popcorn. You go get the butter flavoring, which you know is just some sort of oil that's gonna stay in your body for 19 years. And you do that and you're pumping it, right? And you're doing the shakers before and you're getting excited. I brought my own salt and vinegar shaker. I'm weird like that. I'll do it. I don't care. I don't even care. I'll do it. Anyone else? Just me, I'm weird. Okay, good to know. Well, they give you one, but it's so small. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna go through that real quick. And I remember I was so excited. The Hunger Games coming out. I haven't seen, I haven't read the books. I'm that guy. Spark notes beforehand. But I'm excited and I'm with a few friends and we're there. And I'm just like mowing and excited and the movie's on. And then it just like, I don't know at what point, but I do remember it just like, it like hit me where I was watching a movie of kids in a dome, killing kids. You know? No one else has thought of that, watching The Hunger Games? Some sick people in this state. No. Like, I'm well aware it's a movie. I'm well aware that the author is painting a picture of, like, you know, like, the ethics of different things, like government overreach, like capitalism at its maximum, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poor, distress, poverty. I see... There's beautiful symbolism. I'm, I'm not saying that it's poorly written. I don't think that at all. I understand there's deep, beautiful motif happening and we're seeing it on screen. I think that's the point of art. I get it. Okay, I'm not making fun of the Hunger Games. But I think for me, despite what was trying to be said in the movie, I truly just was like, I can't watch this. We didn't have kids at this point. This was like well before that. I just remember feeling like I couldn't do it. I don't know, anyone else ever had that moment where you're just in an environment? It could be a movie, it could be a song, it could be something like that. It could be completely different. I don't know what it is. I just was like, I don't want to eat this anymore and I don't want to watch 
Rue die. Like, it was really sad, right? Like, it's a, like, it was heavy, and it was hard on my heart. And I just remember thinking, and I got up, and I walked away for a while, and I came back, and she was like, you were gone for a long time. And I was like, this is a hard movie to watch. And I remember not watching it for a long time, and then, now I love it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, no, I'm kidding. But there's just things in life that sometimes really press your heart, and you're like, oh. I do think God's teaching us in those moments. I'm not more spiritual because of that. It was just for some reason that impressed on my heart. And I'm sure you've had moments like that as well. I had friends visit us from Edmonton a couple years ago and they came in and they, they honestly, it was, again, this may make sense to you, it may not. And it's just another example that I'm trying to bring to the forefront of our time tonight. And he, he was just talking how as soon as they came to Victoria, he felt like a real big heaviness. I was like, oh, like, tell me more about that. He's like, I don't know, I just felt... I just felt distressed. I just felt heavy and where they were staying was a pretty harsh area. And it was just interesting talking to him how he just felt this like spiritual heaviness, this weight. And it like didn't happen, it didn't leave until he got back on the ferry. And for him, he was just praying through that and trying to understand it. And there's more to that. And I'm not trying to give you something we're going to be able to talk about tonight, but there's just moments like that, isn't there? Maybe you felt that before. Maybe you walked into an environment that just feels like, whoa, I don't know where it could be, but where it has, but sometimes that happens. And Paul has this moment, and I think it's, it's really important to see why he has that moment. It says this in Acts 17, starting in verse 16, he has this experience. While Paul was waiting for them, them being like Silas and Timothy and, and maybe even Luke for, this, for, all that, for all we know, but Acts 17, 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed, greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Idols, he says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. We'll come back to the word idols in a second, by the way. As well as in the marketplace day by day with, hope, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is Luke's kind of description of what he's seeing. We take from that that he's probably being maybe even potentially sarcastic in verse 20 of the way he describes how they ask. May we, may we know what this new teaching is that comes to our ears this evening? Like that's kind of the, the, the way he's describing this. Like he's saying, you're bringing some strange ideas to us and we'd like to know more when we really have no intention of understanding, but just talking that's kind of what he's, what he's saying here. Like, again, I want to break this down. Paul, he's a Jew with a monotheistic view. That's mono being God, theistic being, being God, excuse me. But he's entered this pluralistic society where there's tons of ideas, like many different gods, many different concepts, many different religions, all these things. And he sees idol after idol after idol after idol as he walks through Athens. At this time, there would have been like 30,000 idols, statues, temples, places, altars of worship. Um, there's a, one poet who's famously written that this time in Athens you would be more likely to see a, an idol or, or of a god than a man. And it's this concept that like everywhere you look there is an idol to be worshipped. 
And there is a story even where, like, where, where they would actually even take goats and they'd go from the very top of the, of the Europagus, which is at the top of this hill, and they would actually like, let them go. And as they went, they'd, go to a, like a, they'd fall asleep or they'd get tired and they'd stop at an idol. And that's where they'd sacrifice that goat for worship to that idol. And if they stopped at a place there was no place of worship or sacrifice, then they'd be like, oh, an unknown God, perfect. Let's sacrifice the animal and we'll just you know, erect a new statue there, a new temple there. And so they just were all about idols and there was all these things and there was idols everywhere. Everywhere you looked, that's all it was. Athens was this, a city of many temples, of altars, statues, and to an educated and, you know, conscientious Jewish, like now Christian teacher like Paul, this would have felt like a really heavy attack on the love and sovereignty of God. This would have been hard for him. He believes that Jesus Christ is close and personal and, and, and moving in him and affecting me every single day. And when he sees all of this worship and happening in different ways, He's distressed, he's distraught, he's heavy burden. For you and me today, what is an idol? We hear it often, when you think of idol, you probably think of like the first two commandments. You probably think of like, you should have no other idols before me, that sort of idea. An idol is any sort of image, representation, person, or an object of your and I, like our worship. Something or someone that we admire, like, or loyal to, love, that we revere, that we bring worship to. And in Athens, there were idols built for many different gods. Again, you've heard this again from me already. And they would even leave out some gods who they didn't know. And they would actually create statues to... They were so, like, concerned that every god was worshipped, they'd have statues and temples, and it would say, to an unknown god, which Paul will actually mention in a sermon as, in the next couple of verses. To an unknown god. Just in case we've missed one, we want to make sure we put that in there as well. You see the picture I'm trying to paint. Why does this matter to you and me? This matters, you guys. Please hear me, Coastline Knights, because your worship belongs to God. I have no quarrel in saying that. I don't feel like it comes off heavy. Your worship, your admiration, your praises belongs to Jesus. He is worthy to be, we often say praise, but he is worthy to be worshiped every single day. Exodus does talk about the Ten Commandments. He does say, you shall know the gods before me. He goes on to say in the next one, you shall not make yourself an image of any sort of form or anything. He goes on to, like, uh, to write in heaven or above, beneath the waters below, you shall not bow, the Bible says, in Exodus 20, verses like 3 and 4. You shall not bow down and worship them. I, the Lord your God, right, am a jealous God, he actually says in Exodus 20. Which is this interesting word, and we've heard that before and thought like, is that a, is God allowed to be jealous? Is that... You know, it's not jealousy in, in terms of envy, right? Like, Brendan's envious that the lanyards match my eyes, like he mentioned. Like, that's, right? A little bit. Like, it's not envy. Bad joke. Whatever. Leave me alone. Like, he's not, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not jealousy and, like, that's something I wish I had even though I don't deserve it. That's not something I am envious of in terms of, like, I wish I had that job or that car or that life even though I haven't worked hard for that car or that or whatever. It's not like, I, I, I don't really deserve that and I just want it. That's jealousy in terms of, 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 in the lens that we often have, the envy that we often carry for someone else. But this is jealousy that is it's different. It's like, it's like this week at camp, I was up at camp and, and my son Bo really grew to love this other guy at, at camp. This one guy who was hanging out, his name was Solomon and his dad Daniel. And Daniel would take him Bo on bike rides if I was roughing a game or whatever. And by the end of the week, he's like, can I go sit by Daniel? And I'm like, no, I'm your dad. And he's like, I'm, I'm gonna sit over there. I'm like, 
no, you won't. Like, you're my son. Like, I want to have a moment with you. He's like, no, I'm going to go sit by Daniel. And he would, like, scooch his way in between this lovely couple at our church, Daniel. And, and he'd sit there, and he'd just put his arm on his knee. And I was, like, really jealous. I was like, I want Bo's arm on my knee. Like, I, right? Because why? Because I'm his dad. I feed that kid. I bathe that kid. And it's a lot of work. Like, I, I'm with him every, like, he slept in my bed literally last night. He's mine. Right? And there's, like, this, this real jealousy of, like, no, I want Bo's affection. No, I want Bo's time. No, I want that. And that's what God is saying. He's like, listen, you're my creation. I love you and I've created you to do good works with gifts, with a future in mind and with purpose, with love. And so that loyalty matters. That's the jealousy. That's the word. It's this affection that's deserved to God. Not this affection he doesn't deserve because he does. It's very different. And I think for us, again, this whole idea of idols and idolatry seems somewhat foreign Especially in this sense, because it's like there were literal statues built to worship other gods, to sacrifice animals to, in that context, in that day and age. And we don't maybe necessarily have literal statues everywhere else, but, but we do have idols in our life. And I think this is like a fairly large theme that I feel like I've preached on a lot, both with youth and young adults, because I think this is something we unknowingly, unknowingly actually like raise up idols in our life and those things or those people get our worship, get our affection, get our time, get our energy. And I think God sometimes is a little bit like jealous in terms of like, whoa, wait a minute. Well, hold on a second. In this, in this context here, you have two groups of people that are mentioned. We're going to kind of tie this in to the idea of idols. You have, Luke mentions two groups. He mentions the Epicurean philosophers. And then he also mentions the Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans were people who like pursued pleasure as their chief purpose in life. Okay, so they didn't dislike gods, but they didn't really believe that God was close, personal, loving. They believed it was kind of like this remote person or persons or many. And so therefore their, their, their kind of sole pleasure in life was to seek pleasure, was to find any way, shape and form, whatever it was, anything. It didn't matter, they valued pleasure more than anything else in their life. They did not deny the existence of gods, but believed it had nothing to do with man. And so that, in that way, they were, it was remote, it was far away, it was right in, even though, funny enough, there's a, there's a God right in front of them. And so for them, you can kind of see how this seeds thoughts into like atheism and agnosticism. And then we had the Stoics, who were a little bit different. They were kind of pantheists who put great emphasis on moral sincerity, high sense of duty. They cultivated this spirit of proud dignity, um, Specific virtues they believed in would lead to happiness. They kind of believed that everything was God. This is God. I am God. The trees are God. This is God. Like, God is everywhere, everything, always. And so you can kind of see in our, in our current climate, this would kind of link to maybe some new age, like spirituality, or even individualistic yet pluralistic spirituality. And so you have these two groups of people who are kind of infatuated with intellectual conversation, who are open to any kind of idol being worshipped. Paul is disturbed, he's frustrated. And for us, in today's world, we also kind of find ourselves in the same climate where some of us are kind of apathetic, stoic in nature, like God is this, God is that, it doesn't really matter. And we kind of also push idols up in our own life that we follow. So that'd be maybe our own pleasure, our own things, what we want, could be money, could be success could be a job you desire more than anything else. If I just get to this job, if I just finish my degree, do the co-op, finish the thing, and get to the place, then I will have finally made it 
or it's a relationship, right? If I just can get connected with someone and get married, then I will finally find the happiness that I want. Or it's about, like, it's like once I kind of have six figures kind of nailed down yearly, then there's my success. Maybe it's just success in general, fame, popularity. Like, idols look very different to every different person. I have to sit here and confess, there's been some days where just doing the job as a pastor becomes an idol. Just got to preach a banger, got to have that one-liner, got to make people laugh. That if I can just do that, then... then they laugh, they listen. If they listen, they learn. But, uh, uh, like, and, we, and that becomes, it's true. You're joking, you're laughing, it's true. Anything can become this idol that we kind of like push forward as the thing to, to, to race after, to grab hold of. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's scary. And so in this place, with all these idols, Paul's distressed. Even in your own life, maybe you can think of some things that you've given your worship to, your time to, your money to, your energy to before Jesus. And so then Paul has this moment because they've asked for him, right? They've been like, will you tell us about this? So they actually go to the top of this mountain, this one place that they would have very intentional conversation. And 30 of the kind of city's leaders and political advisors and intellectuals come together and they're sitting there and Paul's there and he begins to talk. He preaches a sermon, if you will. He, has a, he begins to have some dialogue. And this is what Paul says to the intellects, to the people who are so smart, to the Stoic philosophers and the Epicureans who chase after pleasure, the ones who just sit and talk and talk and talk. This is what he says. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, he uses that term kind of uniquely, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. This is verse 30. Guys, I jumped so far ahead, didn't I? Totally did. That's funny. Starting in verse 22. Are you ready for this? Hold on. Starting in verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Okay, I wanna stop for a second, and not just because I skipped ahead, because this is really important. And this word ignorant is not like a derogatory term. He's not, it's not negative, he's just saying, you don't really know what you're doing. And I think for us, in one sense, you have people who, like even in this term here, like you have people who can't really control themselves, so they go after every pleasure. You have some people who are so focused, so stoic, so apathetic in life that they're like really conscientious of the things that they have. And at its core right here, what he is saying, listen, idolatry, what you're worshiping here, it actually pains the heart of God. And this is why. This is what Paul's trying to say. It pains the heart of God. This is important. Because in idolatry, it shows a great capacity to worship God. That's what's so crazy about idolatry. I think for a long time I've talked about this and preached about it just being so bad and so negative and it's, it's not a good thing for sure, but idolatry pains the heart of God because within idolatry, he sees the capacity to be worshiped. He sees the capacity to love God, to worship God. We choose, it's not like we're not worshiping anything, it's that we choose to worship other things, created things, things out of, of pleasure, things of this world and God's like, 
Don't worship the created thing. Worship the creator, the one who loves you, the one who's formed you, the one who's shaped you, who's molded you, who's given you these gifts. Like, that's what Paul is trying to say. He's like, you're ignorant to the very things that you worship. And that's what he wants to proclaim to them. That's what he's saying. He's like, listen, you're missing the very point. To feel as though you need to worship you guys, and maybe you've felt this before, I think indicates that eternity is written on your heart, that there is more to life than just pleasuring your desire, that as you worship and lift up and admire and adore the things of this world, you're left without truth. You're left in this place of emptiness because you've placed your trust in a counterfeit God. There is a fantastic book that I would recommend to everyone. I think I have before. It's my favorite my favorite writing of Tim Keller, the great late Tim Keller, and it's called Counterfeit Gods. And in it, he says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. So you need a little more description? There it is. Anything that has become more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Just, can you just think on that for a second? Hear what he's trying to say. He goes on to say in a later chapter, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by whatever is Lord over our life. And that's why you hear me often say, if he being God is not Lord over all, he's not Lord at all. And so, yes, when success and money and fame and duty and jobs and, and sex or intimacy and acceptance or ideology even, when that becomes the thing that controls you, you have actually created an idol that defines you. And that idol that, that you've defined or created will control your worship and it defines the way you of your life. And Paul here is saying, listen, people of Athens, I see that you're religious. I've looked around at all of it. I found an altar to an unknown God. You are ignorant to the very thing you worship. You don't even know what you are worshiping. And for us, I have to look at that and think, man, he's not wrong. <laughs> Idolatry pains the heart of God because he knows that there is a place for worship. And I just wonder if we would just shift our thinking and shift where we put that worship. I think God would be so much more pleased. So Paul keeps writing. He says this in verse 24. Not jumping ahead. 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that he would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. That's important. I think we sometimes get lost when I'm reading lots of verses. Please hear that. He is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, this is interesting. He doesn't go to the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't quote the Psalms or David or Moses or anything like that. He says, as some of your poets, Greek poets, he's, it says, we are his offspring. And he's actually quoting like something with biblical truth, but in their context. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. 
Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because in the past God overlooked such ignorance. For he has set a day when he will judge the world by man he has appointed. He has given proof to this by this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In verse 32 and 33, I think, matter. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. What is a sneer? Like an audible... <laughs> I got No one? You got, give me one. Participation, guys. Participation. That's all I ask. It's actually a weird thing to ask for. My apologies. I shouldn't... Meh. Like, I, I want to know what a sneer is. Mm, I don't know. Sorry. I'm being weird again. But others said this. this is, I think this is funnier than the sneer. Sneer is like, <laughs> Paul. These guys say this. We want to hear you again on this subject. I love this. Interesting. This speaks to our heart. We'll talk later. Like, wow. Powerful stuff. Lunchtime, anyone? Like, they're just ready to, to move on, right? There's no real heart to learn and understand. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers. I don't want to, I, I, I say that so like, meh. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius and a member of Ropagus, also another woman named Demarius, and a number of others. This is good news, for sure. But I think I'm just stuck on this idea that some people said, we want to hear you again sometime on this subject. And this is what Paul was getting at, or Luke was getting at, the writer, when he literally said, like, they just like to stand in circles and talk. I, I don't think we're so far off of the Athenians. I think we love to talk and talk and hear ideas, but man, the idea of repentance, the idea of salvation sometimes, it's like, it's hard to go there. And I get it, because we have to deal with real things. We have to confess sin. We have to talk about how we, we have made mistake, that we have sinned against God. That's a hard thing to talk about, for sure. But it's necessary. And your sin does not trump the Savior, you guys. And I think sometimes, like in, in Paul's sermon here, it's not that like he's like, you worship idols even though you don't know the real God. God doesn't come from people. People come from God. Stop worshiping idols. Start worshiping God. By the way, the reason you know Jesus is real is because he died and rose again. Not because a goat went down a hill and laid over for some water. Like he's, hello? Like the Messiah has come to have a relationship with you. He died on the cross so that he could take your sin, but rose again, defeating sin, so that you and I can have hope for now and hope in eternity forever. This is the good news of the gospel. Not that this statue, if you like, you know, kill a, a lamb beside it, that the crops will grow. Not that this, not this temple, not this thing. None of this matters except the real God, the true God, Jesus Christ. And we are stuck, even in our time now, worshiping celebrities or celebrity culture or celebrityism. It's even infiltrated the church, this whole idea of a celebrity pastor. It's, what are we even talking about? This is ridiculous. Like, it's infiltrated all of these areas where things become idols. The pulpit can become an idol. I don't, Lord Jesus, please know, kill my ego every chance I get an opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus. And Paul is trying to explain this, and they're like, maybe some other time. I want to encourage you. Maybe you have said the same thing where someone has come to you and said, listen, I want to share with you some really interesting thing I heard at church. I know we we're both there. Yeah, I don't know. That was cool. Whatever. Let's go to the thing. Let's go to the place. Let's go hang out. Let's go get a drink. Let's do this thing. And we just kind of throw it aside. It's like, no, God actually tonight is trying to deal with the idolatry that is in this room and maybe even in your heart. And you brushing it aside is doing the very thing that, that we've already seen in history. 
And Jesus is saying, I've set you free of worshiping false gods, counterfeit gods that will leave you wanting more. You go to an idol hoping to give, you know, giving your trust, hoping for truth, and there is no truth outside of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, why would he say, I am the truth? I am the way. I am the life. And so when you place your hope and trust in something other than Jesus, and it comes back void or empty, or you wanting more, how are we actually that surprised when we see it again and again and again? Again, I, I want you to know, I think it's really unique here that Paul didn't use the Bible to try and convince anyone. I just have a couple thoughts on that because I think the main idea here is idolatry. I don't want to miss that, but he didn't use Old Testament. Honestly, I read a lot of commentaries this week that kind of went after Paul. I'm like, he missed it. He made a mistake here. I'm like, can you say that about Paul? Like, I didn't even, interesting. I would never want to say that. Like, they were like, he missed the mark. And that's why in 1 Corinthians, he talks more about the gospel. And he didn't miss the mark. He talked about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, he was clearly in that. But he was trying to help to speak to the moment, this specific culture, this specific place. I was having a conversation with a gentleman after church today who works at ICBC. And he was just saying how the conversations he has with his coworkers are are so hard. And this is a place where I actually struggle to relate to many of you because I work at a church. I'm not saying I don't have conversations with only church people, but I just, my coworkers are like, they want to pray for me. Like, I, I, I'm blessed, that's a blessing. That's, a, that's one blessed thing for sure, that working part of the church, that if I need to go to Brand or Del Mar or Robbie, those guys would lay their hands and, and lift me up. And so I was having this conversation that was really hard to hear because he was just saying how like, the conversations are dull. They're hard, they're like faithless, they're heavy and yet also really boring and meh and like just meaningless, it's so dull. Like, and I just wanna encourage all of us because I was trying to encourage him. I know like it can't happen every single second of every single day. But I think for many of us, we're having dull conversations with people of faith all the time. We're having really dull conversations with people who need life-giving faith conversations, even like after church. Can I just encourage you a couple of things? Stop having, stop having surface level conversations. The best way you can, I know it's like, a, it's always avoidable and sometimes it's gonna be like, yo, hey, nice to meet you, how's the weather? Great, okay, bye. <laughs> like, that's gonna happen. But if you can have meaningful, like genuine conversation where the phone goes down and you try to have an impact on someone's life, this one thing I've learned from Paul, it's that he doesn't waste time. He's not there just to like shoot the story. You know what I'm saying? Like he's not there to, this is bad, it doesn't matter. Um, he's not there just to like talk about nothing. He wants to have real, meaningful, genuine, authentic, like, how, like what is going on in your life? Like there's purpose here. If you're gonna talk about sports, like talk about it, but be meaningful about it, you know? You can, it's true. Like I had a guy at church come up to the other day. He's like, I know you made fun of the CFL the other day. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like me. Um, and he's like, but do you think the CFL is getting worse or better? And this is why. And we sat there for like 11 minutes talking about how the CFL is barely better than a college football team. But like, it's still, you know, and it was like, this was meaningful. We didn't just, you know what I'm trying? You know what I'm trying to say? Like even the other day I was, Delmar like introduced me to the genius of Kendrick Lamar, which I didn't know. Because I had just seen one, it's true, I had just seen one live appearance from him. I was like, meh. And he's like, meh, what? And he didn't let me have that. Like, he stopped me and shared with me just like, I don't know, just like the 
origin story of one of his albums and how it experienced loss and love and an unfair world and his wrestle with justice and karma and all these pieces and God and faith. And I won a Pulitzer Prize and I'm like, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Because he stopped me in the middle of a line and said, I'm not going to give you that one, actually. Kendrick deserves more than that. I, again, I've only started listening to one album, but I was like really blown away and I was really encouraged. Like, can we go to places that we don't just hear things and move on? We don't just discuss, but we discover. I think that's the heart here. It's not just discussing ideas, but we're just like discovering new beauty in every aspect of life, specifically faith. I use analogies of sports and music because that's often our conversation. But I don't want to be people who, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered and others said, we want to hear you again another time on this subject. I hope we're a community that's listening, that's discovering, that's moving past just discussion and is having meaningful, hard, faith-filled conversations. Are you hearing me tonight? Because they had actually created an idol of intellect. Let's just sit in a circle and discuss. Look at us. Smarty pences. You know, like, what picture like a pipe, you know, and they're stoking the fire. And this just became the thing. This was it. Just the conversation. But they never went anywhere with it. Spurgeon actually said that, Charles Spurgeon actually said that wisdom is the right to actually use the knowledge you have. And, and to know is not necessarily to be wise. He actually said, many men know a great deal, and many of them are greater fools for it. To know how to use knowledge is to truly have wisdom. And I think sometimes we don't catch that. We have all this thought and zero action, all this philosophizing and zero like real discovery and purposeful moving forward. Second thing I'll quickly say on this conversation piece, sorry guys, I'm going a little long, but I think this is important. I think we avoid godly conversations in fear of critique, right? And so we don't want to go deep in case someone's going to critique us in our faith. But the truth is, what people assume is a critique of God can often become an introduction to God. And so I think for many of us, we're, we avoid the hard convo because we don't know what it's going to look like if I have to have to deal with that one. So, like, For example, one thing I often hear, I think this is what Paul was doing, by the way. He was, he was taking this little piece of creationism and he was trying to show them like how we were actually created that your hands making an idol can't make it God because you're not God. And so if you have made something, then how does this become a God to be worshiped? And he was trying to paint the picture of creationism and, and the creator. And I think for us, we often see this too. One, one thing I've, I've often seen is this idea of if God is loving and if God is real, then how come there's so much suffering in the world? Right? Huge question. I have no time left and I just dropped that bomb. Um, but I think there's this like concept like, if God is real, then why is there suffering in the world? And we look at that and we're like, yeah, I don't want to go there. That's really, thank you for asking that. Let me never get back to you. It's kind of how we, right? Because this is like really hard and really heavy and we avoid the conversation and we go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, interesting, right? And we, dis we discuss and we never discover and never talk. And we don't sit and we pray with people. Because often behind that question is a whole lot of hurt first of all. But secondly, I've often seen that question as like, well, what, what do you mean by suffering? This idea that suffering points to, a not, not, that suffering would point not to a creator doesn't make sense because if, I often say, I even had a conversation about this one time, I was even saying like, how do you even define suffering? Tell me more about suffering. How do you define right and wrong, good and evil? 
good, like love and hate. Where does your moral compass come from? Well, it's just in me from, it's always been there. I'm like, aha, what do you, tell me more about that. Tell me more about how you define good and evil, right and wrong, love and hate. Because I believe that comes from something, someone, a creator. The naturalistic, atheistic would be okay with suffering, actually. Survival of the fittest. Like the weak will perish, the strong move on. That is the answer to that question for the, natural, the person who would say naturalism is key. But for the Christian, we would say, no, 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 that's not, that's not actually what we believe, that we believe that there is intrinsic value in every human and that the moral law that you're defining good and evil off of actually comes from the moral law giver. So suffering does not say, hey, there can't be a creator. In fact, suffering points to a God who's given us both the free will to choose good or bad, love or hate, like right and wrong, evil or cherishing and loving one another. So suffering doesn't equate to no creator or no God. In fact, it's the complete opposite. But there's still heaviness around that question about support and care and, and heaven and hope. And that's why we say, our God actually says, hey, despite there being evil and suffering in the world, there is hope for today. That he wants to give you life and life to the full. That he can take brokenness and make beauty out of it here and now on earth. And as well, one day there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more hurt. So the question is about suffering, like I don't think any worldview gives a better answer to suffering than Christianity. And so we run from a question that sounds like a critique when in fact it could be the introduction to who God is and how much he loves someone. Are you hearing me? And that's like the three minute quickest answer of all time. But I think again, we run, we run from hard questions, worrying that it'll create this critique when it actually can become the greatest introduction to God. And so I, I almost feel for Paul in this moment, and I am closing now, where he's, he's walked through Athens, he's seen all these idols. He preached his heart out to try and convince people. Many of them sneered. I want you to go home and work on your sneer, okay? There's your homework. Many of them just wanted to sit and talk and talk and talk and talk and never got anywhere. And at the end of the day, Paul walks into what is an intense environment, 30,000 idols. And here's the, here's the key to all of this. Worship team, you can come up and join me. We're gonna close now. Here's the key to all of this. Andy said something to me that was so powerful. I don't know if he said it in a sermon or not, but he just mentioned it to me when he got back from his trip and he went to Ephesus and Athens and all these cool places. And I said, like, well, tell me, what was the greatest thing he saw? And he was like, yeah, there's lots of cool pieces and history and all this, but man, all the statues and the temples and everything we went to, it's just in ruins. Like it's just, it's just been like torn down, right? From years and years and years of different things and war and all that sort of stuff. But he's like, all those things are like, like heads are just chopped off of statues and arms are missing and things have crumbled. And here's the thing, here's the point I'm trying to make between this, which, which rang in my heart so heavily when I heard him say that. And my thought was like, man, an idol? Idols ruin us and then they become ruins. <laughs> Are you hearing me tonight? Like an idol will steal your trust, give you back a fake truth, and then over time, turns to dust. An idol will ruin you and it'll turn to ruins. It is not everlasting like our God. It is not sovereign and in control of your life like our God. It is distant and far away and something you have to visit. It is not close and near. It doesn't draw to you when you call on it like our God.
An idol will take and take and take. And our God who deserves all wants to give and give and give so much. In fact, he gave his one and only son. The difference between a counterfeit God and Jesus Christ is so stark. It is so shocking to me that, listen, I put myself in this category too, that we all keep running to idols. And so we put our trust in a boyfriend or a fiance, girlfriend, whatever it is. We put our hope in that degree that gives you that salary, that gives you that life you want. We put our trust in our following gotta hit this many followers, whatever it is. We put our trust in that one day we'll make it or one day we'll have it all. We put our hope in success or in fame. We put our hope in just feeling good about ourselves and drink and wine and whatever it is and cocktails with the guys or cocktails with the girls. We put our hope and faith and trust in these things that just leave us empty again and again. And then when someone approaches us on it or wants to have a hard conversation about it, we just discuss and discuss and talk and talk instead of discovering the purpose that God has for you and recognizing that every single one of these idols will continue to take, will continue to give you a fake truth, and we will be left wanting more. Friends, money doesn't think of you when you're gone. It goes away. Your job doesn't miss you when you retire. Like, your following will fade away. The older you get, the more you hate Instagram anyways. Like, it's just, I don't get it. Like, every idol turns to ruins. There is one everlasting God. His name is Jesus. And for many of us, this is a message we have heard again and again and again. And we become just like the Athenians, where we just sit in a circle and talk. And I am asking you, I am pleading with you. I don't want to say beg because it sounds too intense, but you know what I'm trying to say. I am hoping and praying beside you that you will turn away from idols that would cause you pain and hurt, that you would turn away from someone else's idea of what success looks like, and you would run to Jesus and make him, place him at the very top, number one, Lord over all in every aspect of your life the top prize, the thing you run to first in the morning and last at night, the thing you ask and say, hey God, I give you everything I have. I trust you entirely in the hardest moments and the happiest of days. That is what it looks like. Because I think sometimes it's like, well, how do I do this? You stop running to things for your happiness and you start going to Jesus for real peace. You stop going to the bottle to numb yourself and you go to God when you're in real pain. You ask for prayer, not, not more pills, whatever it is. I'm not saying you can't have prescription things to help you with things. That's not what I'm getting at. You know what I'm trying to say. It's the essence of running to something to fill you rather than running to Jesus to say, Lord, I feel empty right now and I need that rest I hear that preacher talking about. I need that hope I hear my friends praying about. I need that love, that unconditional, sacrificial grace that I hear my pops or my moms talking about. I need something that will truly fill me because I keep running to the world and it's not working. And so I asked the team to sing a specific song and it's not gonna mess with your emotions. I pray that it won't. It is a declaration that puts God at number one. And I pray and hope that every time you sing the three words, you, and it's fairly repetitive, and I hope that help is helpful, that idol number one would fall aside, that idol number two would come down, 
But idol number three would move aside. And by the way, I've labeled a lot of things as idols, but listen again, it can be good things. It could just be a best friend. I know, and I know that sounds like, well, then everything's an idol and this whole thing is really hard. It is challenging, for sure. That's part of the tension we run is trying to continue to say, God, I want to keep you number one. I mentioned even my own work, which sounds like ministry. How's that? It can't be an idol. It can be just theology. You just crave more theology than you do Jesus. And so I ask you right now to stand across this room, all across this room. Would you stand and would you have an honest moment between you and Jesus? I don't want to cultivate something that's not there. I want you to have an honest moment with Jesus and I want to sing a song together and in faith and in belief and in hope that the idols would come like falling over, that you could even picture statues in your own mind, just heads being lopped off, if you will, like moving aside, things going to ruin because there's only one God that lasts forever. So would you close your eyes? Would you take a moment? Would you search your heart? Excuse me, would you search your heart? Maybe you already know some of the things that kind of stand out as number one. And when we begin to sing this song, would you sing it? Would you, hear me guys, would you participate in this moment here? Would you declare this over your life? Would you reposition Jesus to the place he needs to be king and Lord over everything in your heart? Would you allow him to begin to break, help you break free of the things that are holding you? So eyes closed and if you feel comfortable, you can raise your hands or you can just wait for the song to be sung. The team is gonna begin to sing and I just want to pray that God will continue, will not just continue, will start maybe for the very first time tonight, removing idols and making his place known in your heart. Come on, let's sing together. Let's move.